welcome to As Luck Would Have It. My name is Abby and I'm the admin and comms worker here at Leichhardt Uniting. We are a church based on Gadigal and Wongal land here in Sydney, Australia. You'll find us at Leichhardt Uniting Church-LUC on Facebook. Sermons are on YouTube under the same name and you can find more information about our church and our team at leichhardtuniting.org.au. In this episode of As Luck Would Have It, Reverend Adrian Sukumar White is preaching on Matthew 9, 9 to 17, in a sermon from 11th of June, 2023, titled Not About Appearances. We have chosen this sermon for this week's episode in reflection of how members of the LUC community are participating in this weekend's School of Discipleship Conference. The theme for this conference is Privilege, Class and Discipleship. I will be providing the reading ahead of Adrian's sermon. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 to 17, from the New Revised Standard Version. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Thus ends the reading. Please enjoy the following sermon. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. This story begins with a call narrative. And call narratives are what we in the church call the stories where Jesus calls a disciple or disciples to follow him. Now, we could take a whole sermon or even a whole series of sermons just to do justice to the call narratives across the Gospels. But for today, we're just going to go with the flow because perhaps more important than Jesus calling today is who is being called. Matthew, the tax collector. What a jerk. I mean, that's the implication, right? We are steered to imagine that Matthew, and specifically his role, is problematic. Doesn't quite translate too well for us today. I mean, sure, we might grumble about having to pay taxes, but we're generally not going to hold personal grudges around those who work for the ATO, are we? But in the time of Jesus, it's a different story. There is no government regulation around taxation. There is just taxation. Matthew is likely to tax beyond what is required to support himself. And on top of that, he's a traitor. 
He would be, at least in part, collecting taxes for the Roman Empire who are overtly oppressing the Jewish people. So he might have some sympathy for the Pharisees when they ask the question, this guy, really? But as the story progresses, we start to see what the issue really is, and it's ultimately an issue of optics, about what does and doesn't look good in public. It's about how much we value appearances, about how much we value what is deemed to be appropriate. And underneath all of this is a problem of division, that there is good and there is bad, that there is in and out, and there is a clear dividing line between the two. And the Pharisees make the assumption that they themselves are on the good side, and that the tax collectors and sinners are on the bad side. And for the Pharisee, it is really important to be seen to be on the good side. But Jesus, as he often does, messes with this system. He sits and eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. Remember that he is a teacher within the Jewish tradition. He is a rabbi. And so in theory, he would be, it would make sense for him to side with the religious authorities, to be one of the good ones. Instead, he chooses to present some bad optics. He sits and eats with tax collectors and sinners. One of my favourite things about the Gospels is how they interact with one another. And whilst we have the dilemma played out in this form in Matthew, we also see it played out in the form of a parable in Luke's Gospel in chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We see the clear divide that the Pharisee has put up and uses the other as an example of what is bad in order to emphasize their own goodness. But notice that the tax collector, in contrast, doesn't refer to the Pharisee at all. Because it's not about how they appear in accordance with others that matters. What matters is the self-recognition that they are in need of mercy and forgiveness. Back to today's story, and in responding to the question about his own behaviour, Jesus offers an important but potentially problematic response. He says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. It's an important point because it articulates his posture of compassion towards those who would otherwise be dismissed. But it's potentially problematic because we could read it as Jesus buying into the dualistic assumption of the Pharisees, that there is still a good side and a bad side, and Jesus just happens to be giving a helping hand to the bad side. It is problematic when we take on the assumption of our own goodness, 
which often evolves into a self-righteousness where we on the inside can look down upon those on the outside. But I wonder if the challenge of Jesus' words are effectively for everybody, that we are all in need of the physician. Because is there anyone who is completely well and not in need of help? Or to put it another way, is there anyone who is not in need of God's grace? We see this fleshed out in John's Gospel in the attempted stoning of the allegedly adulterous woman. When asked what should be done about it, Jesus says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And what happens? Nothing. No one throws a stone. No one is without sin. No one is without the need of God's grace. To develop this point further, Jesus then offers some homework. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And for us to learn what this means, we need to turn to the Hebrew Scriptures, as Jesus is quoting from Hosea in chapter 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. And what is happening in Hosea's story is that he is calling Israel to account. It has strayed from its calling as a light to the nations. There is rampant injustice going on. But at the same time, the Israelites are participating in burnt sacrifices which offer the appearance or optics of faithfulness, as though animal sacrifices are enough to remain connected with God. And of course, who are the people who can offer the most and the best sacrifices? Surprise, surprise, it's the wealthy, the powerful, the best connected. The theologian William Martin says this, Without awe, people turn to doctrine. Without reverence, people turn to rules. Without awe, people turn to doctrine. Without reverence, people turn to rules. This is ultimately what it comes down to, both for Israel in Hosea's time and in Jesus' time. People have turned to doctrine and rules rather than relationship, whether it be with God or with their fellow human beings. And so for Israel, what matters then is sacrifices. For the Pharisees, what matters is the fasting or being seen to fast and eating with the right crowd. But what's missing is God. And that's not to say that rules and doctrine are necessarily bad because they do have an important purpose of steering us back to relationship with God, back to the core commandment of loving God and loving neighbour as ourselves. The problem lies when the rules and doctrine become God in and of themselves. I'm reminded of an old story I heard once, a modern-day parable, if you will, and it's about a guy named Bill. He has wild hair, wears a T-shirt with holes in it, jeans and no shoes. This was literally his wardrobe for his entire four years of university. He's brilliant, kind of esoteric and very, very bright. He became a Christian while attending university. We all might know someone like Bill. Across the street from the campus is a well-dressed, very conservative church. 
They want to develop a ministry for students but are unsure of how to go about it. And one day, Bill decides to go there. He walks in, no shoes, jeans, T-shirts and his wild hair. The service has already started and so Bill starts, to down, starts down the aisle looking for a seat. The church is completely packed and he can't find a seat. By now, people are wondering what's going to happen, and no, but no one says anything. Bill gets closer and closer to the pulpit, and when he realises there are no seats, he just squats down right on the carpet. Although perfectly acceptable behaviour at a college fellowship, this has never happened in this church before. And by now, the people are really anxious, and the tension in the air is thick. About this time, the minister realises that from way at the back of the church, a deacon is slowly making his way towards Bill. Now the deacon is in his 80s, has silver-grey hair, a three-piece suit and a pocket watch. A godly man, very elegant, very dignified, very courtly. He walks with a cane and as he starts walking towards his boy, everyone is saying to themselves, well, you can't blame him for what he's going to do. How can you expect a man of his age and his, of his background to understand some poor college kid on the floor? It takes a long time for the man to reach the boy and the church is utterly silent except for the clicking of the man's cane. All eyes are focused upon him. You can even hear anyone, everyone breathing. The people are thinking, the minister can't even preach the sermon until the deacon does what he has to do. And now they see this elderly man drop his cane on the floor. With great difficulty, he lowers himself and sits down next to Bill and worships alongside him so that he wouldn't be alone. I call this story a parable because it shares two important characteristics with the parables of Jesus. For one, it's subversive. The story doesn't quite go where we might have expected. And two... We are invited to imagine who we are in this story. Which character do we relate to, at least for today? For me, I probably relate closest to the minister. Not because they're a minister, but because they are inclined to sit back and watch the situation unfold. The minister could have been, and probably should have been, the one to get down on the floor beside Bill. But instead, and this could be just reading my own stuff into the story, he doesn't, under the guise of appropriateness, of caring too much about what others might think. That's in part my challenge, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's also the challenge of some of you as well. We so often live and die by appearances, and breaking that down is no easy task. And so we need to remind ourselves and each other about how it is important it is not to get caught up so much in appearances, but instead to have our eyes open to what is really important. I'm sure most of you would have heard the term, put on your Sunday best. The implication being that we should wear our best clothes to church. It probably started out innocently enough as an encouragement to prioritise worship in our week. But over time, it shifted into a competition for who would have the best clothes, the brightest clothes, the biggest hats. It became a competition of appearances. But worse than that is when it became internalised. 
that we should be bright and happy and on top of things when we come to church, even if that's not how we actually are. And if we don't, it's probably best if we just fake it, just so we can fit in. And this is where we can start to see how investment in appearances can be outright harmful by preventing us from bringing our whole selves to church. That's not real. That's not authentic. And if church is anything, it should absolutely be a place where we can be our real, authentic selves. As I finish this morning, I want to touch briefly on the wineskins. It's one of those analogies that's both well-known and not really known at all. If you wanted to summarise it, you you could go with the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But we can't leave it there because Jesus doesn't. What he says is, neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Take note of those last few words, so both are preserved, the new and the old. Without that addition, we could take Jesus' words as a form of supersessionism, That is, that the traditions and practices of Judaism are the old and that the way of Jesus, which we might call Christianity, is the new. But that's not what happens. Jesus understands there is value in the old, just as there is value in the new. And just as he doesn't want to see the Pharisees reject the tax collectors and sinners or Jesus for eating with them, he doesn't want us throwing away the past as well. Instead, he calls for us to sit in the messy middle where we hold on to both tradition and innovation, where we are connected to what comes before and with what is happening now and into the future. And that's something that we just can't do on our own. We can only do that in community. This is in part what we strive luck to be, a place which wrestles with the new and the old, engages with progressive theology and new ways of thinking about God whilst at the same time valuing and connecting with the traditions and history of the church, both locally and as a denomination. It's a tricky tension to hold, but we believe it's an important one. And that means that there are times where we are challenged in ourselves by language, whether it might be old or new, But it is in the context of community that we can then talk about it, explore our discomfort and see if there might actually be something for us there. We want to keep our wineskins intact, our wine unspilled, and we can only do that together. In the name of the triune God who is community. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of As Luck Would Have It, proudly presented by Leichhardt Uniting Church. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe and feel free to leave a rating or review. And you can also visit our website and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Have a great day.